right. Um, Brother Tom is not here, you might have noticed. And so, um, he left me the keys. We will bring it back with a full tank. So, um, let's go to Luke chapter 20. We'll look at verses 9 through 18. And stand with me in honor of the reading of the Lord's Word. This is commonly known as the parable of the vineyard or the parable of the the Lord of the vineyard. This is, again, Luke chapter 20. We'll start in verse 9. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But he looked at it. He looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the, key, the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Father, we ask your blessing on the the teaching of your word, Lord. Uh, Reveal to our hearts what you have for us, Lord, the the truth you're trying to teach us here. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated. All right, so we've got the parable of the the Lord of the vineyard. So for context, what this parable is talking about, it's always good to look what happened right before Jesus tells the parable because usually the parable relates to whatever was going on in that moment. And so we look back in, uh, in verse 2, the, Jesus, Jesus was already, he was at the temple, he was speaking, and um, in verse 2 it says, and they spoke, these are, these are chief priests, in verse 1 we see it's chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you're doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? So they're asking, um, let me just, first of all, the, the, the irony of the situation, this is God in his own temple. And his priest come up and ask him, by what authority do you do you do these things? He had just cleansed the temple. He was teaching and preaching. Um, just don't don't miss a, a don't miss a bit of that irony there. It's just it's 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 unbelievable. It's unthinkable. Um, but lest we judge him too harshly, by the end of today, I'm, I want us to, to think about: Do we do the same thing? Okay, so they had just questioned him. And then Jesus had the, the back and forth with them, and he, you know, he asked them, he says, I'll, I'll answer you with a question, and by, by whose authority did John baptize? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And they wouldn't answer, and so he said, well, neither will I tell you. And, and they went away from him, because in, in, in doing that, he revealed that they feared man more than they feared, they feared God, because that's why they would not answer. These, these priests, these scribes, these elders wouldn't answer because they feared the people. And so Jesus revealed that to the crowd, and then he goes into this parable here. So who's he talking about? 
it's, it's pretty easy to figure out the the son is is him right the son that is sent the the, the, the father is the the landowner the vineyard owner the lord of the vineyard and um, the ones that that keep are, are the, the Jewish people they're the ones that were hired to farm it uh, to, to grow it and they reject he sends the servants he sends the prophets they rejected they were unresponsive to him. They're the unresponsive church is what, what I titled this, this sermon. Um, they did not respond to their God, the one who gave them their position, who gave them everything that they had, who made them a nation. If you look at the history of the Jewish nation, he took one man, he took Abraham. And uh, Abraham was the first person that was called a Hebrew and uh, made him into a nation. That was the promise he gave to Abraham. And, and not only a nation, but a great nation. Israel was was a great nation. If you look during the days of David, you know, David brought about peace from their enemies. Solomon brought, brought wealth and wisdom. And then, you know, it was kind of all downhill from there. They, they began to squander. They began to, to turn away. The kingdom split after Solomon. Uh, the kingdom of Israel just went straight into the ground. Uh, Judah kind of had some times of repentance along the way, uh, but, but it, was, it, it was rocky. And so the Jewish people would not listen to the prophets when they were sent to them. And those were the servants that were sent ahead of time. They were the prophets, and they, they didn't listen. And so they, they see the son coming, and let, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Let's, let's put this, let, let's end this once and for all. Okay, and that was the mindset, that was the heart of these priests, these elders, these scribes, was we don't want him, and we're going to talk about why that is here in a minute. But we know from chapter 20 verse 2 that's that's why this parable was told okay he's teaching the people here's what your leaders are doing here's who they are here's what your people have done as a culture for the last you know several several generations they've not listened to god they've not responded to the god who, who not only created them but created them and established them as a nation made them prosperous has always blessed them the god who gave them all those promises and they they didn't want him and so, yeah, this parable is directed at the Jewish people, especially their religious leaders. But what we need to understand is that we can also become a church, a, a family, an individual, however you want to look at it, and it's, it's applicable every way. We can become a person who is unresponsive to our God. Even, even while we're sitting in church professing Christianity, studying our Bibles, we can be unresponsive to God. If we look back a little farther in Luke 19... Um, starting in verses, well, verses 37 and 38. So what happened right before this uh, is, is, is very telling. Verses 37 and 38 of Luke 19, it says, As he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is what's known as the triumphal entry. And this is not actually in Jerusalem yet. This is... The little towns, Bethsaida, Bethphage, outside of Jerusalem. And as he's coming in, they see him and these people. These people have seen his works. Okay, it calls them disciples right here. These are not the 12, but these are people who've been following Jesus. They've seen what he's done. It said they begin to praise him because of the miracles. And so they believe who he is. What are these same people going to do? Later on this very same week, they're going to they're cry, crucify him. They're going to turn on him because he's not the one they want. And so Jesus was just exalted as God. He was acknowledged as he's riding in. Prophecy is being fulfilled. He's coming in on a donkey's colt, and they're, you know, they're, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
instead of riding high and being happy, Jesus, what does he do next? If we look in verses, uh, let's see, verses 41 through 44, instead of being happy, it says, and when he approached, he saw the city. He's looking down on Jerusalem and he wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So that's, that's what Jesus is crying about here. It brings, it brings a tear to Jesus' eye. We would think, you know, again, the triumphal entry, he's, he's excited, he's, you know, no, he's, he's brokenhearted because he recognizes, he sees through what's happening. He sees the reality, he sees the condition of their hearts, the hearts of his people. And so, Jesus wept for Jerusalem because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. So what I want to ask us, do we recognize the time of our visitation? And... Uh, the first thing we need to think about there is do we recognize Jesus for who he is and what he came to do the first time, the time we're reading about here? What did Jesus come to do? He came to set us an example. He came to suffer. He came, he came to die in our place. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring forgiveness. Do we recognize him for that? I would, I would imagine most of us in this room probably do, maybe even all of us. But there's more than that. Do we recognize him for what he's coming to do very soon? To find us faithful, to judge, to punish, to reward. Do we, do we recognize him for that? Are we living our lives in a way that recognizes that? And then do we recognize Jesus for who his word says he is? This is the tough one. This is where I think we falter a lot of times and, and where definitely the modern American church falls apart and fails miserably is we, we do not recognize Jesus for, for who he says he is his own testimony about himself. What we often do is we make a, a God in our own image and we slap Jesus' name on it and call it good enough. Right? Um, churches, churches across America, across the Western world are filled with people who don't have a clue who they're there for, who they're worshiping. They do not know what the Bible says about him. And they may own several Bibles, not even read them sometimes but they don't know who God is. Not recognizing uh, who he is is idolatry. And it doesn't just hurt you, it distorts God to the souls that are searching around you. When people around you are looking for truth, they're looking for something they know, they, they recognize their sin, their condition, and they're looking. And if all they run into is so-called Christians who have this distorted view of Jesus and who he is, distorted view of, of the gospel, then they might give that a try. I've heard people talk about that with, with my own ears. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I, 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 I teach in Sci-Fair ISD, and our, our great big convocation, every, every teacher in the district getting together in one of the big old Berry Center auditoriums, and they're bringing a keynote speaker every year. And this guy was talking about how he had, he had struggled with depression before, and he tried everything. He tried this, and he tried that, and he said he went to a faith healer. Okay, And that, that was his giving God a try. And that didn't work, so he, he walked away from God. And, um, I, 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 first of all, and he said other disparaging things about God as well. I couldn't believe they brought this guy in to talk to us. Um, they, they do something like that often. But, um, you know, that, that was this guy's experience. Okay, He was actually looking 
and trying. He was, he was trying to find the truth. He was trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And he thought he tried God. Is that his fault or is that our fault? He didn't have a real Christian in his life. He had some, you know, charlatan acting like he could, he could do something and he wielded the Holy Spirit like a weapon, uh, probably for money. And then that was it. That was, this guy said, no thanks, that didn't work, that was embarrassing, I'm moving on, I'm trying something else. And so when we misrepresent the gospel, when we misrepresent who God is, there are people out there looking and searching. We're not only hurting ourselves, we're turning them off. When our religion that we've made up fails them, they're going to blame God and they're going to walk away. If we evangelize like the false teachers do, saying trust the Lord, he'll make your life more enjoyable, which first of all, a lot of people living in sin, they're having a great time, right? For now, anyway. I mean, you, you remember. Um, I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's enjoyable for a time. And so if my gospel is Jesus is going gonna, gonna to be fun, it's a, it's a better life, it's a, it's a happy life, I'm distorting the gospel. They're going to give it a try. Is it going to be a happy life all the time? Nope. Yeah, I have a happy life, but... That's not all it is, and that's not what we've been promised. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised fun, right? I mean, we're, we're promised mocking. We're promised persecution. So when we misrepresent the gospel, we're leading people into a false religion. They're going to hold God to promises that he never made. And then when he fails to keep our delusional religious promises, they're going to blame him. We're going to walk away. And so we've actually driven people from God by distorting, by trying to make it something that it's not. So what did God promise? He didn't promise fun. He promised forgiveness. He promised salvation. He promised righteousness. When someone's looking for that, when they're broken because of their sin, when they've had enough, that's what they're looking for. They don't care anymore about fun. I've had my fun. It's killing me. I need out of this. I need to know the truth. Where is it? Is there anybody in their life? Is there a church in their life? Is there an individual person in their life? who knows the gospel and who lives the gospel and who will bring the truth to him? Or are we, like the Jews here in Luke chapter 20, are we, are we unresponsive to him? Is he not the one that we want? And you hear all the time, Brother Tom says all the time, and, and he's right too, that you know, church is not a, it's not a social club. It's not, the, you know, it's, 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 it's not a place of self-affirmation. That's such, a, that's such a lie of our culture is self-affirmation, you know. Um, who I am, what I was doing was killing me, and I need to acknowledge that. Okay, God doesn't want to bring me in and give me, you know, tips on how to how to live, how to date, and how to handle my money. That's not what that's. I, I've sat in churches and heard that before as sermons. Okay, um, I'm not saying God's not interested in those things. He wants to be in every aspect of our life, but He wants me to know that I'm lost without Him. He wants me to know and to acknowledge that, hey, sin is killing me. Sin is not my friend. Sin is not a, sin is not a, a fond memory from my past. Okay, sin is death. It's not something to sit and relive in front of my kids and to laugh about with my buddies. And, you know, Brother Tom used to also say this all the time. <laughs> he said, you didn't repent, you just got old, right? <laughs> you, think, you think you're Christian because you don't do the things you used to do anymore. But if you still look at your sin that way, that life you used to live, that's not repentance. Repentance recognizes what sin is, the poison that it is. 
We were just sitting talking a little while ago about, you know, God says, be holy for I'm holy. Well, I can't do that. No, you can't. He can and he will. And he'll teach you and he'll train you how to live according to the spirit. Romans chapter 8, all about it. Romans chapter 7 ends in frustration. The very last verse is, is hopeful, but leading up to that, those few verses, what I want to do, I can't do. The things, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing them anyways. And I see the law of sin and death at work within me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then the last verse, I believe verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will save me from this body of death. Okay, so we've been, we've been liberated. And then verse 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Verse 1 of chapter 8, the next verse. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, the original Hebrew, or excuse me, Greek includes who do not live according to the, to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, so he doesn't say, he doesn't say you, you'll never struggle again or anything like that. He just says there's, now no, there's therefore now no condemnation. So I'm not righteous because I quit sinning. I quit doing anything. I quit doing those things because I've been made righteous. Because righteousness has been purchased for me. has been imputed to me because of faith. Because I've trusted him and believed what he said. And believed in the work that he did. The work of salvation. The work I couldn't do. There's nothing I can do to save myself. To make myself righteous. It's only the gift of God. So in verse 37, back in Luke chapter 20, why did they praise God? They praised him for what? What does it say there? Luke 20, 37. They praised him for what reason? Because of the miracles they had seen. That's very telling. Jesus once said that to a group who had just been fed. He, said, he says, you believe me because, because you were fed. They weren't believing for the right reasons. They were, they were seeking, what can God do for me? Okay, that's, again, that prosperity gospel. That's the gospel that says Jesus will, will make your life better. Right? He'll make it more enjoyable. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun life. Everything will work out for you. That's not what God promised. And so if that's what your faith is in, when that doesn't happen, you walk away. Life gets hard, you walk away from it. So that's never what he promised us. So they, they, they served him, they praised him for the miracles. So the question is, why do you serve the Lord? And if you read the book of Job, and we're, we're finishing as a family with the kids, we're, we're kind of wrapping up the book of Job right now. And all throughout the book of Job, what are they discussing? They're discussing two questions, one building on the other. The first question is, do hard things happen to the righteous? And Job's friends were saying no, right? They were saying, Job, but this stuff's happening to you because of your sin. God doesn't, God doesn't let this happen to the righteous. You've done something. Okay, so that's the question is, do hard things happen to the righteous? And if so, why? Why would God allow those things to happen to the righteous? And then at the end of the book of Job, God speaks. And he never answers either of those questions. You'll notice that. Okay, he does answer those questions elsewhere in the Bible, but not there. Why? Because that's not what Job is about. The book of Job is not about why do hard things happen to the righteous. The book of Job is about why do you serve the Lord? That's what it was about. That was Satan's initial accusation against Job, right? Is that he only serves you because you've made him prosperous. You've given him this, you've given him that, you've put a hedge around him. And so what Job learned about himself and his faith by the end was, that's not why I serve the Lord. And then he was restored. Okay, We, we may or may not be restored in this, in this life. We will be in the next. That's the promise of God. 
But here, we live by faith. We don't live by sight. And so he never answers that question in the book of Job. Instead, he corrects the perspective of Job and his friends. And so think about it. Job's wife said, curse God and die. Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are the two perspectives. When, when things got hard, Job's wife said, I'm out, and you need to get out too. This is not God. Your God is not worth serving anymore. She didn't say that, but that's essentially what was behind her message to Job. And Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? even in his suffering. And so that's the difference. Right? What we're in it for, our responsiveness to God is going to depend on why we, why we followed him in the first place. Why did we come to him? A lot of disciples turned away. They fell away from, from uh, in John chapter 6, the end of John chapter 6, he talks about that. I'm not going to go there right now, but if you want to look at it, those last few verses, a lot of people who had been following Jesus turned away because, because now what he was preaching was hard. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't feeding us and healing us anymore. It was, it was here's, here's your condition. Here's what life is going to be like. And they didn't want any part of it anymore. And we see that with these people here. They serve him because of the miracles. They praise him because of the miracles. The Jews rejected Jesus because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. So what do you want him to do? What do I want him to do? That's the question we have to answer. Like I said before, do we come to him for prosperity and for happiness and for, you know, so girls will talk to me and so I'll have money and, you know, we'll fill in the blank with whatever it is. All right. Um, or am I serving him? Do I, did I come to him for righteousness, for forgiveness of my sin, and for salvation? The ancient Greeks and Romans wanted gods who would indulge their desires, so they created them. The Muslims want a God who will allow them to dominate their enemies and ultimately the whole world, so they created one. The Roman Catholic Church wanted a God who could be bought and whose wrath can be satisfied by religious ritual and vain repetition, so they created one. The atheist, the New Age spiritualist, the pantheist, they're all the same, essentially. It's just the same heart behind it all. Um, they wanted to make gods of themselves, of humanity, and so they created it. The modern Western churchgoer wants a God who's unjust. He's unjust because he doesn't judge their sin. He judges the sins they want him to judge. They want a God to be their good luck charm. You probably know somebody like that. Right? Better not be you. Right? But, but, but we've probably all done that before. We've probably been guilty of that, though. We wanted a God who doesn't want to change their lives. He just wants to be held and sung to. That should sound very familiar. Okay, that's, that's, that's probably around 75 to 90% of modern American churches. Right? They want a God they can get excited about with actually getting to know him. They don't really want to know him. So they created that God. This is idolatry. The vast majority of modern American professing Christian churches are, are, are worshiping an idol. They call it Jesus, but he's not. He's not the God of the Bible. The gospel is not preached in the majority of churches. Let us never be guilty of that. There are people who are looking, who are ready to be saved. Jesus said the harvest is, is ready. Ask the Lord the harvest to send out workers. Pray, him to send, pray for him to send us out. And he's done that. So the one God is not created. Man creates their own gods, but one God is not created. He alone is. He calls himself I am. 
throughout scripture, Jesus called himself I am also. I am is in the present imperfect tense. Yes, English teachers, other in the room. Um, the present imperfect tense, don't, don't be tripped up by that word imperfect. That doesn't mean flawed. Imperfect means it's not done yet. When something's perfect, that means it's complete. It's over. So the present imperfect tense means it's something I am doing continually. It's not, it's not done and it's over. Okay, so I am is a loaded name that God calls himself. I am means that he exists outside of time. All right, he is the self-sufficient um, I don't care what belief system you ascribe to or you entertain the thoughts of, there must be a, a self-sufficient, self-existent source. The atheist even has to acknowledge that, and they won't, and they will, they will make up some ridiculous, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, reasons why they don't have to have that. We have dark matter and dark energy taught in our textbooks, and there is absolutely zero evidence found for it, and we've been looking for it for a long, long time. Spending a lot of money looking for it for a long, long time. I've heard, I've heard very well-respected college professors at very well-respected colleges pitch the idea that we were seated here from an alternate parallel universe. And in the, in the interviewer did not laugh in their face. This is how badly we want to believe in anything other than God. There must be something. There must be something, and there must be something self-sufficient. There must be a God. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me, starting in verse 18. Probably going to be a familiar passage of Scripture to you. Romans 1, 18 through 23. I love this because the, the previous two verses, Romans 1, 16, y'all know, I'm sure. It's, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. And then he talks about salvation, the gospel, and righteousness from faith. And then he goes into verse 18, for the wrath of God. All right, so we're, we're taking a, a, a tone shift here, okay? For the wrath of God, in verse 18, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Something I want to point out here. Suppression is an active verb, right? It's an active action, I guess. Um, that's not something I just let it. I don't just let suppress. I have to actively stifle something if I'm suppressing it, okay? The truth, it, the truth is obvious. The truth reveals itself, okay? We know. We know there must be a creator. There must be a source. Um, we have the law of conservation of matter, the law of conservation of energy, that, that, that the amount of material in the universe can neither be created nor destroyed. Can't explain that, by the way, but that's the case. The same is true of energy. It can be converted, it can be manipulated, but it cannot be created or destroyed. Okay? We know there must have been a source. The atheist will say, well, who, you know, but the obvious flaw in atheism is, okay, who, so you believe that everything created itself out of nothing? You know, and, the, and, and I've heard some excuses offered there where it's like, well, nothing doesn't really mean nothing. Okay, what well, had to come from somewhere then, whatever you're starting with, who created it? And they'll usually come back and say, well, who created your God? And the answer, like we just talked about, is he is not created. I don't serve a created God. 
right? God exists outside of time. He is I am. He is present imperfect. Before there was time, he created time as a constraint for us and for our universe, okay? He was, he was there before time. He's there after time. He is I am. He just is. And so he's not created. Do I fully understand the mechanics of that? No. But eternity is what's outside of our, our physical universe here, okay? And so that's who he is. And so we see in Romans chapter 1 here again, it says um, men suppress the truth, so they actively have to fight against the truth because it keeps rising up, it keeps revealing itself, it keeps showing up, and so we have to suppress it actively. Why do we suppress it? John chapter 3 tells us because men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And if we think we're any different church, if we don't accept the, the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, then we're not. We're not any different. We've created an idol, something in our own image that we're comfortable with and we want to, we want to worship um, and we're not letting the Bible say what it says, and we're distorting that for the rest of the people who are out there looking, who need to be saved and who are ready to be saved, who are ready to be harvested, to use Jesus' terminology. And so, what's he telling us there? Do you accept who I am? And this is directed at the church. Of course, outside they don't accept who he is, but, but we should. We should let the Bible be his testimony about who he is for us. And so, are you listening? And how do you respond to God? So this makes me think of Abraham. When I see the way the Jews, again, Jesus came in, Luke chapter 20, and they, they're excited because of the miracles they saw, and then a few days later they, they turn on him. He's not the one we want. He's not doing the things that we want. We, we all, you study your history you know, the Jews being under Roman rule at the time, they were looking for somebody to come in, the Messiah to come and reestablish the kingdom militarily, politically. And, and, and there are promises in the Old Testament about that. Okay, and we have the benefit of hindsight now. We know that some of those promises were, were to come to be fulfilled then and some we're still waiting for when he, when he ends everything. Um, Jesus even acknowledged that when he, when he stood in, in, the, in the tabernacle and he read... Um, from Isaiah, I've come to bind the brokenhearted. I've come to set free the captives, restore sight to the blind. He, where he stopped, if you keep reading there, he talks about, and then the stuff he's going to do at the, the second coming. But he stopped there. Okay. So what we see there is that Jesus, there was a separation between his two incarnations or manifestations, if you want to call them that. And so um, I, I try not to judge them too hard because they were looking for more. Okay. I might have been guilty of the same thing if I had been there. I hope not, but I wasn't there. I'm here. And so this is what I have to work with and deal with now. And what, what you have to make up your mind about is, do I let him say what he, what he wants to say about himself? And so I think about Abraham. He was Abram at the time that this happened, but he's overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And God tells him what he's about to do. Why did he tell Abraham what he was about to do? 
because he knew what Abraham would do. Abraham had the heart of a Christian. What did Abraham do? He interceded. He said, hold on. <laughs> he said, give them time. Okay, and he said for the sake of, he got him worked all the way down to 10 righteous, which couldn't be found in the city, and so they were destroyed. Um, God takes no, no joy, no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. The Bible says that multiple times. Um, he says it twice in Ezekiel. He says it in 2 Peter 3, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, a couple other places. Okay, it's a doctrine throughout the Bible. God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but his desire is for everyone to, to repent and be saved. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. Yeah, that's why the Bible also teaches that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God gave man 120 years in Noah's day to repent, and they didn't. And so God told Abraham what he was about to do because he knew what Abraham would do. And Abraham did what he was supposed to do. He did what we should be doing. Would God even bother to tell you if you had been there? Would he bother to tell me if I had been there? Would I have done anything? Would I have gone down into the cities and tried to find the ten righteous? Um, when we had our men's conference, Bernie, Bernie Carbo spoke, and he talked about that just, just being on his deathbed with his drug addiction, and he went to rehab. He had a panic attack. It never happened to him before, so he thought he was having a heart attack. He ended up in the hospital, okay, and laying in the hospital bed, gentleman in the room with him, shared the gospel with him, and he became a Christian right then and there. He asked the man his name. The man ended up being an old, an old Baptist preacher, but he asked the guy his name, and the guy said, the only name you need to worry about right now is Jesus. To this day, he does not know the name of the man who, who shared the gospel with him all those years ago. And at that men's conference, he turned on us, and he said, he said how many of you would have let me just lay there? A dirty old broken-down drug addict would have just left me alone, let me die. So why do we serve God? Are we responsive to God? Or are we the unresponsive church? Are we the church that shows up, we pat each other on the back for being there, and we, we, we get excited and we sing to a God that we don't know, that we don't have any relationship with, that we don't care to get to know? And when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we just, we just walk away and we drive other people away. We're not concerned about the lost. Would God have even bothered to tell you what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because that's his heart, was to save them. He gave them time. He told Abraham the reason for the 400 years in, 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 in Egypt of the Jewish people was he gave the Amorites those 400 years to repent. That, that was the purpose of those 400 years. And there, yes, there were people in there who were saved. We know Rahab's name, right? She, she, was, she was not a Jew, but she was brought in. Right, so God didn't want to just wipe people out as your, your, your big atheist crusaders want you to think. God gave them time to repent, and those who did, he brought them in. And that's what he wants for us. So we know God has told us. He has bothered to tell us what he's about to do. How do we respond? Are we being responsive to him? When we find out, when we study the word, first of all, are you studying the word? When we study the word and we find out, okay, there's something God expects from me that I'm not doing. Do I change? Do I repent? Do I acknowledge it? Or, or do I go on? Winston Churchill once said that, uh, you know, every, occasionally people actually stumble over the truth, but most of the time they pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. And I'm afraid that's what the church does when we read the Bible many times. Um, we hear the preaching. We read the word. And then we say, that's nice, and we walk away. James, James 
uh, talks about that. The word of God's a mirror. The purpose of a mirror is to correct my appearance. And uh, if I look in the mirror and see what needs to be corrected, but I walk away, then I've not, it's, it's done me no good. I'm not a hearer. I'm not a doer. I'm just a hearer of the word. If that's you, if you are unresponsive to the Lord, first of all, if you're unresponsive to the Lord and you've never trusted him, the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Um, while he's calling you, trust him, repent. All that we have to do on the authority of God's word is acknowledge our sin and call out to him to save us. And that's what he'll do. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That's what it all boils down to. The other stuff is stuff that he wants for us to grow into as we become a Christian. Okay, But what he expects is not that we... Not that we clean ourselves up first, because we can't. You've probably tried that. You probably know that from experience. I know I do. We can't do it on our own. He does not expect me to be righteous on my own. He just expects me to acknowledge and cry out to him. That's, that's the difference between life and death. And then the other stuff is what we grow into we, we, as we go through the process of sanctification, discipleship. If you are a Christian, but you've not been doing you've been unresponsive to God, repent. He's, that's what he's calling you to. We have to make up our mind every day to be responsive to him and to acknowledge him. Okay, so, so if you are a Christian who's not been doing this, repentance is what he's calling you to. So um, you guys come on up. And, um, and during this time of invitation, uh, be responsive to God. Make up your mind that you're going to be responsive to him. Um, he does not need anything from me. But he invites me to be a part of his story, of the work that he's doing. And he's calling to you, repent.